Welcome to this Purdue Engineering Podcast, featuring research that addresses critical issues related to societal resilience in the face of crises and efforts to engineer long-term solutions for a more robust future. My name is Shruti Suresh, and I am a PhD candidate in the Weldon School of Biomedical Engineering, known as BME at Purdue. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Maria Davila, an assistant professor in biomedical engineering, and learn more about her work in neuroscience and neural engineering. Welcome, Professor Dadalat. You became a faculty member at Purdue in 2019, so you're fairly new at BME. Can you tell us a little more about yourself and the work that led you to Purdue? Actually, I started out at Purdue. I grew up in Indiana, and like all good Hoosiers who want to become engineers, I came to Purdue and was an undergrad in the biomedical engineering department. And after doing several rotations and taking a class with Dr. Pedro Irothoki, who introduces everybody to bioelectricity in the brain, I just became extremely fascinated with the topic and went on to pursue some undergraduate research in his lab, joint with Dr. Jenna Rickus. And after that, I went off to the joint program UC Berkeley UCSF to pursue a PhD in neural engineering. And there I joined a lab that looked at a variety of things. It was in part a systems neuroscience lab. And I'll probably use that word a few times, so I'll just try to define it. When you think about systems neuroscience, what we mean is that we're thinking about how different neurons in either a single or different parts of the brain are working together to accomplish some goal. So one of the main focuses of the lab was studying multisensory integration. How do you use your sense of vision and proprioception, the sense of your body's position in space, to actually make more precise estimates of where you are and where you should move and how you should move in order to achieve some goal. I joined that lab and had the opportunity to pursue a new project, which was to develop artificial sensation for neural prostheses. So neural prostheses try to find a way to remedy or work around uh, neural injury and disease in order to restore some sort of motor control, for example, visual function or auditory function to people who have lost that ability. And so we were focusing specifically on a brain-machine interface. With a brain-machine interface, you're recording neural activity from the motor cortex, the part of the brain that responds and actually concocts motor commands. And you're translating that neural activity into control of a computer cursor or robotic arm in order to restore some degree of independence to people who have lost the ability to move due to paralysis or injury. Now, these people typically rely on visual feedback in order to control this prosthetic device. And we have found that if you additionally give them an proprioceptive feedback, so some notion about uh, the position of this robotic arm or cursor in space, in addition to visual feedback, they actually do a much better job of learning to control the device. So my project concerned using electrical stimulation, so passing tiny electrical currents into the brain to activate neurons in a way that provided information about uh, the position of a cursor on a computer screen. That work was done in monkeys, which is quite common for brain-machine interfaces, and we had a lot of success. So we successfully trained monkeys to reach to invisible targets using just this patterned electrical stimulation signal, and we were also able to see that they were able to integrate uh, the electrical stimulation signal with natural vision to make even more precise reaches when both were available. So that was a really wonderful proof of principle that something so 
seemingly artificial and foreign as patterned electrical currents in the brain can actually become very familiar to animals and potentially to humans and provide a relatively high level of information that they could use to control these devices. One of the things I found frustrating during my PhD was actually working with monkeys. They're really wonderful creatures and they're very intelligent and likable and I had one in particular who was always eager to come out and, and take part in the project and he was a wonderful worker, we called him, but um, there are so many limitations there. It's very difficult to record long-term in animals like that from too many neurons. So we were only sampling from either one or two small areas of the brain and recording say 50 to 100 neurons at each location. And as a good systems neuroscientist, what you want to do is to be able to record from as many neurons as possible because the human monkey brains have on the order of 10 to the 10 neurons total. So sampling from 100 to 200 neurons, it's not going to give you a lot of information about how the system is working, especially when we don't fully understand it, which we don't right now. So I looked around and I saw that some really exciting work was being done in mice using optical imaging. So specifically with two-photon imaging, you can combine two-photon imaging with transgenic animals that just naturally express these activity-dependent fluorescent proteins. And so what that means is that there are certain proteins within their brains that when neurons are active, they fluoresce. And so by just optically imaging these neurons, you can get an idea of what many, a very large population of neurons in the brain is doing. Recent publications show up to 10,000 neurons in a single mouse. And that's really what we need if we want to be able to try to understand what a complex system like the brain is doing. So as a postdoc, I went and worked in a mouse lab and learned a lot of these techniques and I have brought them with me here to my lab at Purdue where we are setting up both an electrophysiology rig and that means that we're recording with metal electrode arrays from the brain and also a two-photon imaging rig which will let us record from multiple cortical areas simultaneously and extremely large populations so we'll be able to understand not only what single brain areas are doing but how they're working together to accomplish goals like planning and executing movements. That sounds amazing. That is a lot of work. Your research involves developing artificial sensation for brain-machine interfaces. Can you give us an example of technology that you're hoping to build that will make a difference and an impact on society? Yes, so one of the limitations that we've seen so far for artificial sensation is that despite the fact that animals can learn to use it to a very high level, it still is not nearly as good as natural sensation. So one of the focuses in my lab is looking at how do you improve it? And we're going to take two sort of approaches. So the first approach is that right now we don't really know what the correct patterns of stimulation that we should use are. And part of that is we don't perfectly understand how neurons in the brain are representing things like visual information and proprioception. So gaining a better understanding of how that's done will give us a better understanding of how we should stimulate. So we will be collaborating with a professor in the electrical engineering department in order to develop uh, machine learning tools to design optimal patterns of uh, multi-channel cortical stimulation that should lead to 
artificial sensation that contains a high degree of information, which is really going to be necessary if it's going to be useful in guiding people to make movements with these neural prostheses. Another avenue that we're taking to address the same question is looking at enhancing neural plasticity in adult animals. So as all of us probably know, it's much harder to learn new things once you've grown up. If you teach a child to speak a new language, they can pick it up to a perfect degree in a year, but if you try to teach it to, say, me, um, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> um, and, and that's in part due to our limited adult plasticity. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we introduce this sort of new artificial sensory motor system to person, this brain-machine interface where they're controlling something new in a different way that they have been controlling their normal, natural limbs. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised that they have a hard time learning how to do it properly. And the same thing is true for artificial sensation. It took six months to a year to train those animals to use that signal, and part of that is it, neuroplasticity is low in adults. And so we're looking at ways of turning up the level of neuroplasticity we see and seeing whether that will speed up learning time and help animals learn to use artificial sensation even more accurately and naturalistically than what we've seen so far. I'm sure a lot of our listeners would love an opportunity to learn a lot faster for sure. <laughs> How is the Weldon School um, uniquely positioned for you to do your research? One of the things that I really like about the Weldon School is something I originally thought I wouldn't like, which is that there aren't that many people doing systems level neuroscience. But it turns out that that's actually a strength because when you've been studying something for a long time and thinking about it for a long time, you can sometimes get into certain patterns of thinking. And once you start talking to other people who have a slightly different background, they see it in a different way and can give you completely new insights and ideas on the topic. Another really wonderful thing that I've seen in the Weldon School is that now I can attack both of these questions, systems neuroscience questions and brain-machine interface questions, at multiple scales. So we have people like myself who are working out looking at neural activity in, in terms of the whole cell and populations of cells. We have a relatively new professor, Dr. Giant, who looks at how single neurons process information that they receive from other neighboring neurons. So it's a slightly more localized approach. And we have yet another professor, Dr. Tammy kinzer Ursum, who can look at the production of proteins in response to learning a new behavioral task. So there are a lot of opportunities to work together with other people in the department that will let us answer not only new questions, but in some ways much more important questions. Because when you look across multiple scales, you actually have a better chance of understanding how the whole system is working and at what level you can perturb the system to try to manipulate it to your ends. That is a fantastic answer. What is the most exciting part about your research and what keeps you interested in this project? What I find most exciting about my research is really that I get to work with and think about the brain. The brain is really what makes us who we are. It underlies everything. Our thoughts, our desires, our long-term goals, even small things, our breathing, our heartbeats. It just is at the very essence of who we are 
as individuals and as a species. And I feel very fortunate that I get to work with brains uh, to try to understand them better. Speaking of brains, what advice would you want to share with potential undergraduate and graduate students who might be interested in working in your area of research? I think the most useful advice I would give them is that they should start doing undergraduate research as soon as possible because neuroscience is really more of an art form than anything else. Just like a surgeon has to train for years during a residency to gain his skills, as a neuroscientist, you have to be an engineer, you have to be a neurosurgeon, you have to be an animal husbandry expert. There are just so many skills that you have to learn that you should just start as early as possible. Thank you, Professor Dadalot, for your time and discussing your research with us. Be sure to listen to other Purdue Engineering podcasts featuring Walden School of Biomedical Engineering faculty and see the show notes on the podcast website for additional information about biomedical engineering at Purdue.